Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. With the summer months upon us, it's that time of year where I give you advance warning about our submissions, which are set to open in a couple of weeks. This time around, though, we're going to try something a little different. We've got a bit of a hunger, you see, a craving for a certain type of terror that we're hoping you can help indulge. As of August 1st, we'll be opening the gates of our full-length fiction submissions to Tales of Haunted Abodes. Classic cobwebbed haunted houses, modern tales of domiciliary possession, heck, why not a Winnebago with a penchant for cannibalism? A Windebago, if you will. You can have that one for free. If it's a place typically peopled by the living, but occupied by the life-impaired, we'd love to sink our teeth into it. As per usual, full-story submissions range all the way up to 10,000 words. For more details on our submission criteria, visit talestoterrify.com submissions. And keep an eye on our social media, too. We'll make sure to give you a heads up there once the portal is open. But for tonight, we've already got some deliciously diabolical morsels to dish up for you. So let's dig right in, shall we? Our first story for the evening comes from Patrick Barb. Patrick Barb is a freelance writer from the southern United States, currently living, and trying not to freeze to death, in St. Paul, Minnesota. His work appears in Humans Are the Problem, Boneyard Soup Magazine, and Not One of Us, among other publications. He is also an active member of the Horror Writers Association. For more of his work, visit patrickbarb.com or follow him on Twitter at pbarb. Children of the Night Join me for Patrick Barb's 
Blackout, first published in Twisted Anatomy, a body horror anthology from Sci-Fi and Scary, February 2021. Rough, upholstered fabric scratches my cheek. I wake up, sitting on the back of a not-so-crowded late-night city bus. My tongue hangs out past chapped and cracked lips. At least, that explains the strange taste in my mouth. A foul cocktail of lint, beer, cigarettes, and something else. Something I can't quite place yet. My eyes hurt, and it's not a headache-behind-the-eyes sort of hurt that I would normally expect to show up on a night like this. No, I mean my actual eyes hurt. I blink and feel one of my contacts, dried out, of course, fluttering across the surface of a no-doubt bloodshot eyeball. I blink again, and the contact catches on my eyelashes. I blink one more time. The contact flutters out of me like some clear plastic autumn leaf. It's hot on this bus. Late summer heat waves burn even after the midnight oils run low. From closer to the front of the bus, someone laughs. They must be laughing at me. The bus moves forward, and suddenly so do I. I'm on autopilot. Even though I know it's a lost cause, I reach for my lost contact. My fingertips brush the stained and sticky bus floor. The rest of my body collapses forward. I grunt. The sounds my body makes disgust me. The top of my head smacks the hard plastic of the seat back in front of me. I hear more laughter drift back from up front. I push myself back into my seat, force myself to sit up straight. I don't want to give those bus laughers any more material. I don't want to give them anything at all. The pulsing, throbbing pain from my eyes extends its territory to the back of my skull. My fingers fumble their way into my pocket. My phone's gone. Again. I peer up at the blinking electronic sign that hangs behind the bus driver's head. I'm headed home, so there's that, at least. But how did I get on the bus? When did I get on the bus? I focus inward, trying to manoeuvre around the pain and access memories from the evening, regardless of how fragmented they may appear. Breaths come in short, jagged, phlegm-filled bursts. I wait for something to come before my mind's eye, something I can sink my metaphorical claws into before it escapes or gets washed away by another wave of nausea. I stand at a dimly lit bus stop, half and half off the curb. Something doesn't feel right inside. The first stirrings of whatever I'm feeling now on the bus. I try to put words to the pain, but the only ones that come to mind make no sense. Hot thorns. It feels like hot thorns are ripping and burning their way out of my stomach and up my esophagus. But even as the thorns rip, tear and shred, the intense burning serves to cauterize the wounds. I feel the cross-section of scars stenciled across my insides that they leave in their wake. I hear them laughing again, probably some teens out on late-night misadventures, finding their evening's final entertainment through the suffering of a disoriented man at the back of the bus. They trade chuckles and guffaws between each other, up and down the bus aisle. I squeeze my eyes shut again. It's hard to open them. Maybe I'm still asleep. Maybe I'm living out the final vicious moments of a REM cycle gone rogue. But then, this horrible smell shoves its way up my nostrils. I can't recall things ever smelling in a nightmare. 
It's horrible. Oh, God, I think maybe I pissed myself. When the hell did that happen? Inside me, the hot thorns are running out of internal roadway. I'm really afraid for what comes next. I won't give in just yet, though. I bite down on my chapped lips. My incisors shred the white, flake-crusted layer, exposing fresh, red skin below. The metallic wet tang on my lips and tongue isn't enough. A trickle of blood dribbles down my chin. It's nothing compared to the surging tide churning itself to a boiling frenzy inside me. I feel it, shoving, pushing, running over all resistance. Turn your head! Turn your head! Of course, it's too late for all that. It sprays out from my mouth with an intensity that shreds the last of the dried skin across my lips. It feels and looks nothing like any vomit I've ever expelled. It pulls its blackened threads through the spaces between my teeth. It keeps coming. I try to look past the lightning crash pain in my skull and desperately pour for another memory from earlier in the evening. I'll take anything. I make my best approximation of a walk to the bus stop. I lean heavily on a friend's, she is a friend, right? Shoulder. I smoke an American spirit. God, those things taste disgusting. All natural cigarettes my ass. I cough after each drag, but that doesn't stop me from taking another pull. Back on the bus, just when I think the worst is over, I cough again. Whatever's inside me, and there's still more of it that wants out, erupts past my lips. It splatters onto my shoulder, then oozes down, soaking through the threadbare cardigan draped across my back like a child's safety blanket. I can't tell if the substance is liquid, solid, or somewhere in between, like mud or slime. Consistency aside, one thing is sure. It's black. And I mean black. Not the muddy, dark brown regurgitations of late-night cravings come back for revenge, or the greyish stomach lining turned rotten, spoiled meat pink from a bender's last stand. I'm talking the complete and utter absence of light. The blackest black. It's all over me now, and I can't hear anyone laughing anymore. The bus passes through an intersection. The green light of the traffic signal shines through the front windshield, hitting me square across the shoulders. Or at least it should. Instead, the light stops short, unable to penetrate the darkness enveloping me, enfolding me in its embrace. I hope my stop's up ahead. I don't want to miss my stop. I retch so hard it causes my head to shake from neck to temple. It looks like the photo negative of the final send em home happy burst at a 4th of July fireworks show making its way out of me, the fuse lit somewhere deep in my guts. After the explosion, it spreads across my body like a mudslide, wiping away all of the me that crosses its path, leaving everything black. Sounds come to me like I'm on a time delay, the way you might hear things when you're swimming underwater. It runs the length of both arms now. Thick strands of tar-black pitch dangle from my cheeks. Are you all right? I figure the voice must belong to the bus driver. Her words reach me the way an FM radio left on in the middle of the night will insert top 40 hits into your dreams at the dawn of a new day. I reach toward that radio voice. Through heavy eyelids, I watch shadows drip from my fingertips. It is down to my hands now. I don't know how any more of the black could come out from inside me. But come it does. It trips up whatever answer I might try to give the driver. Is she even really there? Did she even ask if I was okay? I sob. Not like I did at Dad's funeral but like a baby, a little helpless baby who soiled himself and can't see any way out but the embrace of oblivion. And now we're not moving. I wonder if the bus driver's waiting. I wonder if she's sitting back up there at the front of the bus, on the radio with her supervisor, begging for someone to come here and deal with me, the drunk asshole on her bus. 
or maybe she's made a run for it. That's what I would do. Encased in inky sickness, what remains of my cardigan clings to my skinny, shivering frame. What all did I have to drink tonight, anyway? Maybe it's better to ask, what didn't I have to drink? How many drinks did I have? At some point, probably earlier than I promised myself, I forgot to keep count. I stumble into a party near the campus. Or maybe the party is on campus. Of course there's a girl. There's always a girl, isn't there? She's young, probably too young for me. If we're on campus, she's definitely too young. But she smiles, at me, and it's not like anyone else is around and smiling at me either. I close my lips tight as I can, but there's no point anymore. My tears fall into the black. My cheeks bulge. I feel lightheaded. Coherent thoughts dim under a persistent black tide. Can you vomit into your brain? See? Stupid. Or maybe not. I feel it pressing against my gums. There's so much of it, and with one exit blocked, it opts to travel up my nasal cavity instead. It burns. Black snot sprays from both nostrils. Pretty sure it's inside my brain now. I feel it up there. Why keep fighting? Why not give in? So that's what I do. A bone-deep shiver passes through me, from head to trunk and through all four limbs. I suspect this is what dying feels like. The last exertions on this side of mortality. It feels like someone cranked the release valve up too high and ripped the crank off the wall. I hold my hands up in front of my face to do what? Catch it? Stop it? Pray? I think I hear someone shouting, but it's like there are football fields length away. I wonder if there is blood, deep red blood, mixed with all the black. There has to be, right? Or maybe the black got into my blood as well, an ink pot spilled down every artery and vein. I run hands through my hair, pulling it at the roots. The top of my head feels squishy, like I'm wearing a toupee of rotten meat. Whoa, don't drink that, dude! I remember the words the way you remember your mother telling you she loved you. You know she had to have said it. But if pressed to sight a specific moment, you freeze, twisting the ends of your sleeves, unable to recall an exact occurrence. If only I could breathe. If only I could think. For just a second. Was it the girl? Was she the one I heard? Or was it someone else from that party? It was a party, right? All those people, dressed up and waiting in that room. I hear music, low and steady. Chanting, a whispered chorus repeating over and over. Some party, right? I ball up my hands into ebony fists. I press those fists against the spot where my eyelids should go. The memories come faster now. They're racing me toward the inevitable climax. Something splashes on my tongue. Take another look. Play it back for re-examination. Whose hand holds the glass to my mouth? Is that mine or someone else's? But I'm afraid of the dark. That's me. But why do I say that? What am I so worried about? It's just another drink. There's nothing else to see inside my head. I try to open my eyes. But I let droplets of it splatter across both eyes. It spreads again, back inside, back where it started. There's something in my eye. I try to stand. I must be coated in black from head to toe. It feels like a new skin, but one drawn too tight over its predecessor. It drags me down. My legs fold underneath like I'm some pulpy newsprint paper doll. All I see is black. Everything is black. Want to know something funny? I can't remember when I stopped vomiting. The black covers me outside and in. How long until it finishes with my brain? Everything, everything black. The black is still, and I am in black. I am of the black. Footsteps. I hear footsteps. Everything is the black, so those footsteps must be of the black as well. 
They can't be outside. Everything is in the black. I hear someone. You finally made it, she says. She is part of the black and I am part of the black. We are together in the black. I smile. My teeth are black. Tongue and lips black too. The air, the everything, it is black. Black on black on black on... The black holds me. Or maybe I hold onto it. There's no difference. Something else moves in the black. Something growls beneath me. Or maybe it's above me. Maybe it's right in front of me. Or maybe it is me. It's all the same here inside the black. Found it, Professor. Careful! Don't touch that. Don't get any of it on you. Who said that? Any sign of subject A475J? It, it appears the test was successful. The substance consumed him completely. Devoured him down to the... Are they talking about the black? What they're saying isn't true. I'm no subject. I'm not devoured. I'm here. I am everything. And everything is black. Whoever I think I hear on the other side in that made-up world of not the black, they don't listen. They touch the black. Of course they do. It will be inside them soon, and they'll be inside it too. And I'll be waiting for them. We'll be waiting for them. Until then, I guess we'll all just fade to... That was Patrick Barb's Blackout, as read by Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is an award-winning author and editor, living in Aotearoa, New Zealand, four-time recipient of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award, and three-time winner of the Australian Shadows Award. He has narrated fiction for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and Pseudopod among others. His horror and dark fantasy short stories have been published worldwide. He is the author of the grimdark steampunk madcap fantasy series Children of Bane, starting with Brothers of the Knife and continuing in Sons of the Curse, Sisters of Spindrift, and Daughters of Dust. And he co-authored the supernatural tech-noir crime thriller series the Path of Raw, with Bram Stoker Award winner Lee Murray. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. Thank you, Dan. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Our second tale tonight comes from Angela Sylvain. Angela Sylvain is a horror writer and poet who holds degrees in psychology and philosophy. She is a self-described cheerful goth who still believes in monsters and always checks under the bed. Her debut novella, Chopping Spree, an homage to 1980s slashers and mall culture, is available now from Unnerving Books. Her short fiction has appeared in various publications and anthologies, including Dark Moon Digest, Not All Monsters, and Places We Fear to Tread. A North Dakota girl transplanted to Colorado, she lives with her sweetheart and three creepy cats on the front range of the Rockies. You can find her online at angelasylvain.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Angela Sylvain's Blood is Thicker, first published in What One Wouldn't Do in September 2021. The crowd of beautiful people sipped champagne and nibbled salmon canopies, hardly glancing at the art they'd all supposedly come to admire. Diane gushed and fawned over them, hating herself for so desperately wanting the approval of these scavengers who were just waiting to pick her bones clean. Her half of the white-walled gallery featured minuscule canvases, delicately painted with graceful figures and muted hues by a finely-haired brush. Vivian's half boasted large canvases, screaming modernity, boldness of color, and an abundance of paint scraped and slopped. The two halves were an odd match, much like Vivian and Diane. They were twins, but of the fraternal variety, Merely siblings born one after the other. Vivian was 13 minutes older and stood three inches taller. Her eyes sparkled a true green rather than a muted hazel, and her hair shone more auburn than brown. Vivian liked to joke that Diane had spoiled a bit during those extra minutes in their mother's womb, coming out bruised and soft like an overripe piece of fruit. One attendee was far more interested in the art than anyone else, an influential voice that could single-handedly ensure an artist's success or failure. Mick Calibri should have been displeasing to the eyes, with skin pocked and wrinkled. His scent should have been rank and sour to the nose. His voice should have sounded like the screeches of sewer vermin. Instead, he was quite handsome, smelled of sharp pine and wood smoke, and spoke with a voice that could charm even the most modest girl out of her underwear. He circled the room. It's quite inorganic, I think. Forced, he said of Vivian's work. Choked of emotion, a parody of anger. Your work is bland and rather sanitized. He said to Diane, no passion in his voice. Immature, a poor imitation of the Impressionist masters. A flush crept up her cheeks, and she dipped her chin to avoid his gaze. Satisfied that his column in the Times would reduce the sisters to carrion, the crowd left their lipstick-stained glasses and crumpled napkins behind as they slipped back into the New York night. 
Diane had tried to tell her sister they were gallery owners, not artists ready for their own show. But Vivian was emphatic, confident in her own talent, and insistent that Diane participate, if for no other reason than to make her look good in comparison. Diane locked the doors, set the alarm, and trudged up the stairs at the back of the gallery that led to their loft apartment and studio. Owning a building in the city would have been an impossibility for a couple of starving artists, but their grandmother, B, was a shrewd businesswoman who'd foreseen the value of New York real estate and invested heavily. When Diane entered the apartment, she found her sister pacing the floor between the mismatched cluster of armchairs that served as their living room and the long, gouged table that held their canvases, paints, and other tools. He's vile, absolutely evil, a literal demon in a designer suit, Vivian said, her words punctuated by the creak of the worn wood beneath her feet. A headache needled the base of Diane's skull, urged on by too much sugary champagne and not enough food. I don't know why. I mean, he's sort of right, about me at least. Have you heard his nickname? Mick the Dick. Loves to get artists in the sack and then screw them again in his column. Diane's face flushed at the memory of her night with Mick. She'd been dumb enough to believe he'd actually liked her, that he would call her again after their tryst. He has some hang-up about women, you know that. We all suck, but every guy he reviews has potential that should be encouraged. I'm sick of mewling at the feet of pompous assholes and begging for scraps. Vivian marched over to the shelves against the wall beside the sofa and began rifling through the books. She grabbed one, tossed it to the floor, grabbed another, threw it aside. We're victims, you know, sacrificial lambs for the patriarchy. Diane followed, picking up each volume. Careful, those are old and valuable, she thought. B had dark tastes and had left behind books on Satanism, demonology, and the occult. If they didn't get another artist who actually sold some work into the gallery soon, they might have to hawk some of the books to keep their lights on. Ha, here it is. Vivian plopped down on the floor, a leather-bound tome in her lap. Diane frowned at the sight of the inverted pentagram branded on the cover. What are you reading? Bee's journal. Have you ever looked at it? Of course she hadn't. Whispering of the dark and evil had been Vivian and Bee's thing, a bond shared only between the two. That stuff gives me the creeps. She lied. She'd always been curious. The pages of the journal, covered in swirling handwritten script and strange symbols, seemed to whisper as they brushed against one another. The air turned colder. Diane rubbed her hands down her arms, wishing they could afford to turn up the heat. Have you ever wondered how she accrued so much wealth, how she was so successful, Vivian asked. Who? B, idiot. She was only in her early twenties when Grandpa died, but she thrived as a single woman in the city when women had almost nothing. She probably rolled in her grave when Dad gave everything to the church. An act of atonement for his devil-worshipping mother, he'd said. If their building hadn't been placed in a trust for the girls, it would be gone too. B knew the truth, that women have to be fierce predators or the mix of the world will eat us alive. Exactly how much champagne did you drink? I'm serious, Di. It's time we claim what we deserve. Vivian rose gracefully, like one of Dugas' ballerinas. Don't you want to get back at him for what he did to you?
Diane flushed. How did you? I mean, I'm not sure what you mean. Please. I know you slept with him, too. He called you bland in the sack, you know. Laughed about the whole thing, like you're some kind of joke. B would have gutted him with her bare hands. Vivian extended the open journal. Diane's empty stomach roiled with shame as she reached out a shaking hand to take the book, her ears filled with the imagined mocking laughter of Mick and Vivian as they lay in each other's arms. Diagrams featuring pentagrams and knives and human figures adorned the book's page. But the scariest part was the heading at the top of the page in B's perfect script. Human sacrifice, murder for personal gain and profit. Don't be such a whiny baby, I'll do the hard part. Vivian looked at Diane with those eyes full of judgment. The whole plan was crazy. Deals with the devil with a stuff of legends and cliched rock and roll songs. Parables meant to teach people that nothing in life is free. They weren't real, no matter what B wrote in that old journal. It was just writing on a page. B would never have actually killed anyone. Diane bit her nail down to the quick, tasted iron. And she would never want us to do something so terrible. What's your big plan, huh? Selling stuff to make a few hundred bucks? That'll get us through a month, maybe. We can't even pay the property taxes on this place, and they'll eventually take it away, too. Then we'll be homeless, out on the street. There hadn't been much to say to that. So Vivian had planned, and Diane had done nothing. Vivian would seduce the dick, invite him to the loft with the promise of an easy lay, and ply him with drinks spiked with rat poison. All while Diane waited in her room, knowing that when it came down to it, her sister wasn't a murderer. The waiting was harder than she'd thought it would be. Music blasted from the living room, thumping through the walls, loud enough to drown out screams. The hurt of Mick's rejection still stung, like a cut that wouldn't heal, and she hated herself for thinking of him, for wanting him. Why couldn't she be confident and strong like Vivian? She splashed more whiskey into her glass and took a slug, wishing it would offer her comfort, but only receiving an inflamed throat and sour stomach. The lilt of Vivian's laugh rose over the music, drew Diane to the bedroom door. She knelt and peeked through the keyhole. A flash of movement crossed her line of vision, then a moan sounded. She drew away and pressed her back to the wall. Had Vivian decided to screw him after all? Diane clenched her teeth against the jealousy that twisted inside her, reminded herself that Mick had used her and thrown her away. She tipped back her glass, drained the last drops. A thump shook the wall and she tensed, holding her breath. The music stopped for a moment, a break between songs, and there was only silence. Then the beat started again, swelled to fill her ears. Every second gaped and stretched as she prayed that she was right, that her sister wasn't a killer. The music stopped, and there was a hard rap on her door. You can come out now. Rising on legs wobbly as a newborn colt, Diane tried to remember how much whiskey she'd had as she crept from her room wrapped in the comfort of her quilt. It was the one she and Bee had made together, sharing a love of detail and subtle patterns and hard work that Vivian had no desire to understand. 
The loft was empty and quiet. The furniture stood just where it had been with lamps and vases upright. No sign of any fight. The walls, floors, and ceiling were clean. No hint of the blood splatter Diane had envisioned. A relieved giggle erupted from her throat. Vivian appeared at her side, clad in a strapless, skin-tight red satin dress, and brandishing a butcher knife. Give me your hand. What? Diane asked, hardly able to complete the thought before the blade sliced across the meatiest part of her palm. Ow! What the hell? Pain singed, then floated away on a current of alcohol. Blood welled and dripped into the bowl Vivian had waiting. She did the same thing with her own hand, opening a gash and catching the blood. Diane clutched her hand to her chest, staining the quilt. Her gaze narrowed on the weird off-white bowl that was marred with sutured cracks. Wait, is that a freaking skull? From Bee's kit. She decided to try some other spell, Diane thought. Something using our blood. And that was okay. Nowhere near as bad as actually killing someone. Maybe Vivian hadn't slept with Mick either, had just given up on the plan entirely. Diane watched as her sister dipped a brush in the bowl and painted a large star surrounded by a circle directly onto their wooden floor, an inverted pentagram. That's going to stain, she said, entirely serious, and wondered if she might be going a bit crazy. Vivian spent several minutes reading from the journal in a hushed voice as she painted more strange symbols around the circle. She grabbed the blow dryer from their table of supplies, plugged it into an extension cord, and dried her creation. Another giggle bubbled from Diane's mouth. Come on, you grab his feet. Vivian moved behind the kitchen island and looked down. Diane's vision blurred, righted itself, blurred again. His feet? She must have misheard. There was no one else there. I don't feel good, and my hand hurts. Rolling her eyes, Vivian muttered, I guess I'll just do it all myself. She disappeared for a moment, then emerged from behind the island, dragging something, someone. The whiskey roiled in Diane's gut, and she fell to her knees, vomiting up the contents of her stomach. Seriously? Vivian said between grunted breaths as she lugged Mick's limp body across the floor. You're cleaning that up. Well, you're cleaning up the blood, Diane mumbled, and for some reason that damn giggle wanted to make another appearance. Her sister had done it, she had actually killed someone, all for some stupid spell that wasn't going to work anyway. A moan drew Diane's gaze to the inverted pentagram, where Mick now lay, his head lulled to the side. Shit. Vivian placed the skull bowl beside his head and flipped the music back on. He's not dead. The quilt slipped from her shoulders as she tried to stand, slipped in her own vomit, fell again. Vivian stood over her victim, the knife clutched in her hand, her lips moving as she chanted words lost in the swell and thump of the beat. She descended on Mick, straddling him. Wait, Diane called, scrabbling across the floor, she had to do something, stop this before it was too late. The silver of the knife flashed as her sister slashed it across Mick's throat. 
Blood sprayed across Vivian's face and neck, then gushed into the bowl she held close. You've screwed your last artist, fucker. Vivian did not clean up the blood. After doing everything else herself, she'd insisted that Diane be the one to do that. Sitting beside the bucket of soapy water, clutching a sopping sponge, she supposed she was getting blood on her hands after all. The whole nightmare seemed dim and hazy, though it was only the night before. Mick's body was gone. She wasn't sure where, and she didn't plan on asking. She had asked about the Tupperware full of blood that sat next to the almond milk on the top shelf in the fridge. Her sister simply said that there were plenty of rituals requiring human blood. Diane wiped the sopping sponge across the floor again and again, turning the soapy water pink. But no matter how much she scrubbed, the image of the pentagram remained, faint but permanent. As she sat slumped in the center of the symbol, she felt warmth around her, a comforting embrace that reminded her of B. She trailed her fingers through pools of blood-tinged water, creating her own symbols to combat those of her sister. Maybe Mick's life, his blood, didn't have to go to waste for the sake of some empty ritual. Her cleanup duty forgotten, Diane claimed the Tupperware from the fridge and placed it on the long wooden table, Using her new ingredient, she blended paints in vibrant oranges, deep purples, dense black, and the most exquisite, vibrant red. The colors were so much bigger, louder than her normal muted choices, and the minute canvases she favored were woefully insufficient. As if in a trance, Diane took one of Vivian's largest canvases and began to paint. She worked feverishly, frantically, not at all carefully, as the paint whispered in her ear. Possessed by a creative drive she'd never before experienced, she worked through the morning and early afternoon. A voice pierced the bubble enclosing her, and she stumbled back from the canvas. What is this? Vivian asked, her eyes fixed on the painting. Diane lowered her brush and pushed her sweat-dampened hair from her forehead. She opened her parched lips to speak, but there were no words to answer that question. She stepped back to stand beside her sister, and they both stared at the canvas now complete. From afar, it would appear to be abstract impressionism, a mix of colors creating a sense of apprehension and unease. But up close, the piece revealed to the viewer faint, twisted figures writhing within the paint, wailing and clawing from the darkest black-red shadows. Diane had no plan, no intention to paint this vision, and in fact had no real memory of doing so. The blood, I used the blood. You little bitch, I'm the one who did all the work. That blood was mine. Vivian gripped Diane's shoulders, shook her. How could you waste it on some shit painting? Heat rose up Diane's chest and neck, flooded her cheeks. Anger singed her nerves, tensed in her coiled muscles, and she shoved her sister away. It's not shit. And she knew it was true, down to her bones. She knew that this was the most beautiful piece she'd ever created. Sprawled on the floor, 
Vivian resurrected Mick's hurtful words with a cruel sneer. Oh, please. So you managed to make one single thing that isn't totally bland and boring. Instead of wilting under her sister's judgment, Diane smiled at the clear jealousy on display. His blood inspired me, I guess. I think he would have liked it. Whatever. Diane stood and crossed her arms, angling a look at the now cold bucket of water. Stop screwing around and clean this up. You clean it up. I'm busy. Diane strode back toward the table and her newly created paints. This time the oranges and yellows whispered to her, and red, always red. Diane slept on the floor atop the pentagram, wrapped in her quilt, and took only the briefest breaks when her body forced her to. In six days, she had created an entire collection. That first painting was christened Torment, and those that followed it were affliction, misery, agony, torture, anguish, fury, wrath, passion, adoration, and devotion. Diane only stopped when all the paint was gone, all the blood now dried on canvas. Vivian agreed they should show the paintings, but the malicious twist of her lips spoke of her true motivation. She was sure it would be a failure. Diane didn't gush or fawn this time. She simply watched as the fashionable people succumbed to her work. The olive crostini went untouched as the assembled crowd stood enthralled and staring, their carefully controlled faces crumbling as her work wrenched pain, anger, sadness, and desire from deep within them. Shockingly raw, one patron said. I want to look away, but simply can't. Gruesome in the most beautiful way. A critic, the one who had replaced Mick after his mysterious disappearance, replied. A bit derivative, though, don't you think? Like a decooning with more color, Vivian interjected. Not at all. This is wholly original, I'd say. The emergence of a new talent. She's my sister, but this whole style, it's more my thing. I'm working on a new collection myself, you know. I'd be happy to give you a private viewing. The critic turned his back on her. Diane couldn't suppress the grin that tugged at her lips, as Vivian muttered some excuse and slunk away to hide in the corner. The night was an overwhelming success, with eight of the paintings selling for figures none of their previous artists had achieved. The critic from the Times raved about Diane's work, promising a column that would reveal her to the world as the next great artist to watch. The attendees finally, reluctantly, left the gallery, glancing behind them as they went, straining for one last glimpse. Diane felt new, reborn. She'd transformed herself from spoiled fruit to perfectly ripened plum. Filled with a confidence she'd never felt before, she knew one thing for certain. She needed more blood. There would have to be another sacrifice. But who? And was she strong enough to kill for her art? Wrapped in her thoughts, she returned to the loft. She'd expected to be ambushed by Vivian, grilled about the remainder of the show. But the space was silent and dim, lit only by flickering candles placed throughout the room. Kicking off her shoes, she crossed the open expanse of the floor, stopping as her gaze caught on the pentagram, 
which was darker than before. No longer just a stain, it had been repainted with fresh blood. A scream split the still night, and she turned to see her sister lunging toward her, an empty bottle of champagne clutched in her hand and raised high. Diane didn't even have time to raise her hands and block the blow before the bottle crashed into her head, and she sunk to the floor. Pain singed her skull and lit up behind her eyes as darkness tried to pull her under. She fought to open her eyes, to talk, but the only sound to escape her lips was a pained moan. Hands gripped her ankles, dragged her body across the wood floor. Diane had a bone-deep sense for the pentagram now, had communed with it over the past week, and felt the sting of its power as she was placed in the center. She managed to crack open her eyes and was met with a monstrous vision. Vivian, hair wild as snakes and eyes wide and crazed, stood over her, still clutching the bottle. Why? Diane croaked. It should be me, not you. Vivian shrieked. I'm the one B trusted with the books. I'm the one who made the sacrifice. You stole my blood, stole my power. Tears leaked from Diane's eyes and streamed down her face. She felt the pentagram lap them up as they splashed to the floor. Her sister straddled her, setting the bottle down and picking up a knife. Vivian grabbed the knife in both hands and raised it over her head, the blade gleaming in the candlelight. But the pentagram was Diane's to command, fed by her hours of sweat and obsession, and its touch infused her with strength and purpose. She reached out to grasp the champagne bottle and swung it, smashing into her sister's descending hands and sending the knife skittering away. She swung again, connecting with the side of Vivian's head. Vivian slumped to the floor. Blood dribbled from her mouth in a slow stream, feeding the pentagram. Diane rose, her breath coming in quick gasps, and grabbed several scraps of canvas from beneath the wooden table. She tied her sister's limp hands, then her feet. No. Stop. Vivian's head lulled to the side as Diane returned her to the center of the pentagram. The knife and skull bowl sat neatly to the side, as if patiently waiting, and Diane picked them up. This was her chance to prove herself, to truly claim her power. She knew exactly what to do. I don't want to die, Vivian managed, her eyes cracking open. Diane giggled. Oh, I'm not going to kill you. The knife flashed as she slashed it across her sister's cheek. Applause thundered through the gallery, and Diane smiled as she angled a look at the ceiling knowing Vivian would be able to hear it. The closet where she kept her sister shackled and gagged was just above them. The show, Diane's fourth over the past year, was another success. Article after article recounted the story of the astonishing new talent who, consumed by grief after the disappearance of her beloved sister, had pushed herself to even darker and more intense extremes. Diane's most recent exhibition brought those who looked at it to tears or sent them fleeing the sight. The Times critic called her work the most vivid of nightmares captured on canvas. And it was only the beginning. Diane had a steady blood supply, plenty to continue her work for years to come. She never cut Vivian very deep, 
just little slices each time she needed to restock her paint supply. After all, she wasn't a killer. That was Angela Sylvain's Blood is Thicker, as read by Crystal Hammond. Crystal Hammond is a narrator-slash-writer, cancer survivor, and non-binary queer human. They grew up in rural North Carolina, nurtured by a steady diet of local Blackbeard legends and Confederate ghost stories. These nuggets of folktale and myth fostered a lifelong love of storytelling, and all the drama that goes with it. They also have a master's degree in biological anthropology and adore ugly cats. Feel free to check out their narration website at crystalhammond.com or find them on Twitter at thekmhammond. Thank you, Crystal. Well... Children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we summon forth fresh frights with more Tales to Terrify. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.